Hello, I'm Zev Newworth, and welcome to Creating a New Healthcare, a podcast series for healthcare leaders who are interested in fresh perspectives, new ideas, bold solutions, and a renewed sense of meaning and purpose in their journey to advance patient-centered, customer-oriented, value-based healthcare. Folks, the views I express on this podcast are solely my own and do not represent the views of any other person or organization that I may be affiliated with. Our focus today will be on the issue of employer health. Uh, it's taken uh, many, many months for me to have a few minutes with uh, this particular guest today, so I actually pre-recorded our interview uh, by phone. Uh, and so what we're going to do here today, right now, I'm going to give you a little bit of background on employer health just to give you a sense of how important this work is. Employers currently pay for 49% of the U.S. population in terms of their health care costs. That's about 156 million people who have their health care costs sponsored by their employers the average cost for an employer per employee is about $14,000 per year. That's the health care cost per year per employee. Not only are those staggering amounts in and of themselves, but the rate of rise of those health care costs are really staggering. Uh, just listen to this. Since, uh, or between 1999 and, and 2016, while the general cost of living rose by 41%, the amount that employers were spending on health care rose by 191%, and the amount that employees were spending on their health care premium rose by over 213%. That's just, uh, that's just profound. So it gives you a sense of, of uh, why employers, as well as employees, are really struggling with, with these health care costs. It gives you a sense of the importance that, uh, of the work that uh, Mr. Andrews and his colleagues are doing. So Rob Andrews currently serves as the CEO of the Health Transformation Alliance. You'll hear quite a bit about uh, the work that he's doing, why he's doing it, and, and what uh, he and his colleagues have accomplished in a relatively short period of time. Rob actually served as a member of the United States House of Representatives for nearly 24 years. He was one of the original authors of the Affordable Care Act, and in fact, uh, upon his departure from the House of Representatives, President Barack Obama praised Rob for his service as an original author of the Affordable Care Act and as a vital partner in its passage and implementation. The president also cited Rob's tenacity and skill in representing the people of New Jersey. I have in front of me, folks, uh, uh, a couple of pages of just bullet points on the various committees that uh, Rob uh, served uh, over 24 years in the House of Representatives. Let me just give you a couple of highlights here. He was uh, a senior Democratic member and a former chairman of the Health, Employment, Labor, and Pensions Subcommittee of the House Committee on Education and the Workforce. He was a senior member of the House Armed Services Committee with responsibility for all military defense matters. He was also a senior Democratic member and former chairman of the Defense Committee panel on audit of the Pentagon. He's also one of the original authors of the Defense Procurement Reform Law in 2009. He's uh, clearly an overachiever. He went to Bucknell University, graduated Phi Beta Kappa Summa Cum Laude, and then went on to... Uh, Cornell Law School, where he's gra he graduated magna cum laude and also uh, achieved the Cornell Law Review. So we are really, really fortunate uh, to have the opportunity to hear from someone who's really creating some transformational change, uh, Rob Andrews, the uh, CEO of the Health Transformation Alliance. And you'll hear, I opened up the phone uh, conversation by asking Rob to give us a sense of the uh, size and scope of the Health Transformation Alliance. So without further ado, we'll cut right into the uh, phone interview. 
So, Rob, let's start with um, the basics uh, about the alliance. Um, when did you launch it? How many employers have signed up for this nonprofit alliance? Um, how many employees does it represent? Could you give Could you give our listeners a background? Our employers started this effort in 2015, the fall of 2015. Our founding companies were Caterpillar, Verizon, American Express, and Macy's, four companies. And their idea was to uh, form a cooperative of self-insured health plans that would work together to try to dramatically improve healthcare outcomes and therefore economic value. Those four companies have grown to nearly 45. Uh, there's a couple that are anticipated to join in the next few weeks. There are 7 million people who receive their health care through those uh, plans sponsored by those employers. And the collective spend is about $26 billion a year. So our, our growth has been exponential, and so are our aspirations. That's uh, that's really impressive. And, you know, Rob, I have to say this. Every time I read about uh, HTA, um, you're, you keep on growing. I mean, I remember when it was 30, 35, 40, and now almost 45. And I remember when it was less than 6 million, and now it's 7 million. Mm-hmm. And just the amount of spent, $26 billion in healthcare spending is really profound. Um, and, and the companies you have now, um, could you name some of the corporations that you that are part of this uh, alliance? Sure. In addition to the founders that I mentioned, uh, Walgreen is a member, International Paper, IBM, uh, Federal Express, Marriott, um, Coca-Cola, DuPont, Prudential, you know, really a, a who's who of forward-leaning progressive companies uh, in our country. And not all of them are significantly large. Um, Wayne Farms, which is a poultry uh, distributor, uh, is one of our members. Foot Locker, a fairly small retail company, um, is a member. So our common thread is not size. It is commitment uh, to the goals that I articulated, dramatically better health care and better value, and then a willingness upon uh, by the leaders of those companies to invest their own time and effort and uh, intellectual capital. So, so I want to I want to get to what you said. I, I think it's really important. And everything I've read from you and and the the uh, videos that I've seen of you speaking, you you talk about uh, a couple of things which I think are really important to start with. You talk about number one, um, fixing healthcare and and you know uh, and making it sustainable. And and then you 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 talk a lot about this vision. And 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 so could you start first and. It may be self-evident to you and perhaps, uh, you know, to, to our listeners, but from your perspective, what, you know, what is, what is broken? What needs to be fixed? What's so unsustainable about our healthcare delivery system today? What's broken is that the incentives for providers to provide and for companies who help that provision, insurance companies, um, pharmacy benefit managers, et cetera, the incentives for those companies are misaligned. Um, in the U.S. healthcare system, too many people get paid too much to do the number of procedures based on the number of procedures that they do or how many units they sell. 
as opposed to how well they contribute to the health of the patient. Now, very often, happily, there's an overlap. You know, that a, a patient who stays to her uh, prescription regime is, and who's a type 2 diabetic is less likely to have a stroke or a heart attack, and that's a very, very good thing. But it's not always the case. And it may well be that uh, companies are incented to sell as many units of prescription as they can to that patient, as many pills as they can to that patient, but it might be the wrong prescription for the patient. And so what we're really about here is trying to match the right care with the right patient at the right time so it leads to a better result. A couple of examples. Uh, As we speak, there are people in ICUs right now that had strokes or heart attacks that are diabetics, type 2 diabetics, who could have avoided that fate if there had been a better job working with them to manage their blood sugar, if their diet, if their, if their exercise regime, if their lifestyle were, were properly coached and mentored and incented, there's a very good chance that a lot of those individuals would be healthy today and not sick. Uh, there are people recovering from spinal fusions today for whom the medical evidence would indicate that physical therapy would have been a better course of action for them. And there are people on very expensive pharmacologic products for uh, psoriasis, where the evidence is that perhaps phototherapy, a heat lamp, would have been better for them. And the reason that the, the person is in the, the ICU who's the diabetic is not because anybody wants to see her there. It's because no one was really incentivized to keep her out of there. The system doesn't really work in such a way that her health rewards the provider. Um, you know, the, the person who has the spinal fusion, uh, there's a perverse incentive that the more procedures you do as a surgeon, the more money you make, as opposed to the better back health for that person. This is not the fault of the providers. This is not to imply that providers are greedy or misinformed. I think neither of those two things is true a vast majority of the time. What is true is that the incentive structure under which these providers work is warped. And what we're trying to do is to write those incentives in a way that keeps people healthier. Makes makes great sense. So it, it is you're you're really going to root cause, which is the fee for service payment system. Is that am I understanding that? Yeah, yes. I think the root cause of our problem is that people get paid on a fee-for-service basis. Most of the time, they do a great job, by the way. This is not a a critique of the quality of care. It is a critique of the economic and legal infrastructure that's supposed to support that quality of care, and it doesn't. And so you've got one of the really cruel things in our system is that a physician who does the right thing, who works with a patient with that diabetic to uh, help avoid um, the kind of lifestyle choices uh, that could lead to a stroke or heart attack, or better yet, tries to encourage the lifestyle choices that would make them healthier, doesn't get paid for that. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the way the system works is that, you know, the extra 20 minutes you'd spend or the extra checking in you do with that patient comes out of your pocket. You don't get paid to do it, even though the result is going to be better for everybody concerned. So we are really all about realigning incentives so that the healing profession, the men and women who do a great job, are rewarded uh, for preventing illness, better managing illness that exists, as well as doing a great job when an illness worsens considerably. Mm-hmm. So, so given that, 
And I think that's that's a, a really articulate, uh, you know, you articulated really well. What is um, what is what is your solution? How are you going to fix this, or how are you? What's what's the way you're going to approach dealing with this challenge, this root cause challenge? At its core, our solution is to spend the $26 billion our members spend more intelligently, which is to say that we want to identify like-minded provider systems, like-minded physicians, like-minded drug companies, and advantage them, make it to their advantage to work on the kind of projects that I'm talking about. So to put it in English, mm-hmm. um, if a physician is really skilled and her team is really skilled at helping a person manage their type 2 diabetes better, we want to pay them more. We want to take the money that is saved because that patient doesn't have a stroke or a heart attack or go blind or have an amputation. Take the money that is saved and distribute an equitable share of that to the physicians and the care providers who made it happen. At its core, that's our idea. We want to pay people to do the right thing, not continue the practice of paying people to follow procedures that really aren't optimal and don't produce the right health results often enough for patients. And I know you have outlined um, at least three, if not four, tactics that you use to, to that you're using to go about that. One is, I think, what you were just speaking to, which is the focus on medical solutions, and and we could dive into that because I, I think it's really intriguing what you're doing. Two is uh, pharma solutions, uh, solutions around medication and um, the cost of medications and the use of the appropriate use of medications. Uh, three, I, I, I understand it's sort of a consumer engagement or navigation uh, solution that you have in place. And then I would say the fourth one, which probably supports the other three, is the use of uh, analytics and yeah. having an analytic platform to help all those threes in terms of the appropriate medical solutions, picking the right uh, physicians, making sure that they're helping them and doing the right courses of treatment, pharmaceutical solutions and navigation solutions, all those three really are underpinned by an analyst platform that you're talking about. Am I, is that the, do I understand your basic outline of your tactic? Exactly. That, that our, our first and most important tactical decision was to engage IBM Watson Health as our analytics partner. The job of IBM Watson Health is to facilitate the distinction between effective and ineffective care by looking at population health and then by looking at the record on on a privacy-assured basis, the records of the individuals themselves involved in in the process. Um, If you think about everything that I said uh, on on our discussion here Mm -hmm. about the better outcomes and incenting people to produce the better outcomes, you have to define what a better outcome means, and you have to measure what better is compared to. So in, in geek speak, and I, I'm a, sort of a wannabe geek, that means your baseline has to be right. You have to ask yourself the question, if we just let the status quo roll along, what would happen to these 1,000 diabetics? What could we expect in terms of uh, stroke, heart attack, blindness, um, amputation, other other dysfunctions, other illnesses. And then how much are we going to improve on that by the care pathways that we're following? 
So, for example, um, Dr. Glenn Steele, who is our lead medical strategist, mm -hmm. was the leader of the Geisinger Health System in Pennsylvania for a number of years and instituted some care pathways in the area of type 2 diabetes that had dramatic reductions in strokes and heart attacks and retinal disorders and so forth. Um, that's not to say that's the only approach we could follow. What we've done was to follow that lead and panel panels of independent expert physicians in the given specialties and have them define care pathways that we will believe will lead to those dramatically better results. So that measurement, that delta between the baseline that you would expect under the status quo and the improvement that we expect under our care pathways creates a card, a value carter, if you will, between what, what you would spend and what you do spend. And the economic difference between what you would spend and what you do spend becomes the basis for compensating people to provide that better care. Now, you know what's really interesting? In, in you're focusing, as I understand it, at least from the literature I've read, on four major areas. You've mentioned diabetes a number of times, and I couldn't agree more with you. With, mm -hmm. Uh, the, the prevalence of diabetes in our population is uh, close to 10%. That, that's literally one out of 10 people. The prevalence of prediabetes, um, uh, that is people who uh, have a high likelihood of becoming diabetic, is uh, over 30%, about one-third of the population. So this is a, a, a an explosion of uh, chronic disease, um, you know, this cardiometabolic disease, and um, it is tremendously debilitating to individuals and, of course, a, a burden to themselves and their family. Uh, it's a burden to employers. The, 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 the cost of someone with diabetes and the diabetes with complications is two to three times that of someone without it. And, of course, the employers are, are putting that bill. And um, just from, you know, every aspect, including from, uh, from uh, just the municipalities and governments, it's, this, is a, this is a major, major uh, epidemic booming here, and it's not just in this country. It's across the globe. So I applaud you for taking diabetes on. It's a, it's a tough, tough thing to do, and I, it sounds like you're doing it well. But you're also working on uh, total hip replacements, total knee replacements, and lower back pain. And what astounded me was this uh, statistic that uh, I read in one of your, your brochures about uh, or, or PowerPoints that those four things, diabetes, total hip replacement, total knee replacement, and lower back pain, make up something like, was it 40% of the forty. Now, we went to our members uh, about a year and a half ago and said, where are you spending your money? Mm. And uh, nearly 40% of the spend was on care for diabetics, vast majority which type 2 diabetics, mm -hmm. um, hip replacement, knee replacement, and back pain. The common thread there, by the way, obviously, is obesity and, and nutrition, uh, bad nutrition habits. Um, so, yeah, it was a pretty obvious area of focus for our value proposition, which is, again, let's use cutting-edge analytics to first identify what we would expect to happen if we did nothing, mm -hmm. and then what can be achieved if we do something more strategic and more effective, and then measure effectiveness through, you know, larger databases to see what works and what doesn't. Uh, this is a method more than it is a program. Um, we never go into a region or sit down with a provider and say, this is what you have to do. That would be presumptuous and I think foolish. The, the better approach is to say, here's evidence 
of a care pathway that has worked in the following way, quantifiably in the following way. What do you think? And if you can do better, if there is a regional adjustment, if there's a cultural adjustment, if there's a practice methodology you think would work better, we're all ears. We by no means claim that we have some holy grail of, of care. But what we what we do insist on is if we sort of start with the presumption of the care pathways that we've worked out, if you can do better, great. But if you can't do as well, then we frankly expect that you'll follow those care pathways and modify the way you practice in order to reach uh, – reach a higher ground. The other uh, geekish thing I'll say here is we completely understand this has to be risk-adjusted. Now, your listeners would understand well what that means, that you can't compare a patient who comes into a a situation, whether it's diabetes or a knee replacement, who's had great primary care, consistently taking care of themselves, adherent to their medicine, a lot of support at home. You can't compare that person's result to a person who lives alone, has a low income, has very little support from their family, doesn't have easy access to, to follow-up care. We understand that. And and so we definitely want to take that into account when you're measuring the effectiveness of results. But, you know, after we take that into account, we think you have to measure effectiveness. In what other area of American life is there not a consistent measure of effectiveness that people live within? Uh, you could argue... You know, there's some situations in education where that's not the case. But in the marketplace, whether you sell credit cards or bottles of soda or build houses or make chemicals, you're tested by the market every day as to your effectiveness and you're fast or fail. We think that healthcare should be held to the same kind of standard, that are you effective? What happens when people come into your system and receive care? And, uh, you know, that's the kind of accountability that we think – should be matched by reward. Um, We're looking for the best and the brightest and the most effective, and we want to pay them for that. We want to be sure they're richly richly rewarded for the good results that they produce because the primary benefit then goes to the patient and her family, as well as the employer and and all those otherwise involved in the transaction. But look, Mm -hmm. at the end of the day, success for us Mm -hmm. is not how much money was saved on health care. It's really not. What we measure ourselves against is how much healthier are the 7 million people that we have responsibility for. And as a result of that, there will be economic savings which are sustainable and meaningful and equitably distributed. Now, boy, Rob, I have so many questions to ask you, and this is really uh, exciting. The um, let me go. It, I, I want to move to the patient perspective uh, and your consumer mm-hmm. engagement. But let me just let's hang first uh, for for a couple more minutes on the medical solution side, and then move to pharma, and then move to the patient because I, I I think I think this is really important. And the fact that you've uh, you you've really pinpointed all these things as tactics, I think are, are really you've got a great comprehensive plan here. So. You know, we've had care pathways around for a long time. Uh, I've been working within provider groups for for years, decades. Um, very, very hard to uh, to uh, have providers adhere to care pathways in the, in a rigorous, sustainable way. You're, I know you're going into you know three cities that at least I know of that you're you're focused on making this happen. What is it? How are you going to uh, you know create this sort of adherence to the care pathways? 
and and I, again, I, I applaud your 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 allowing for this autonomy and your your making room for it. The fact is that if someone has a better way to do it, why not let them do it their way as opposed to the way you've outlined? So I think you're spot on, and I and it sounds like Glenn Steele had a hand in that because it sounds very much like what he's done at Geisinger. He's had more than a hand in it. He's been the driving force and the yeah. inspiration. There, there are really two answers to your, your very well thought out question. The first is collaboration rather than mandate. Um, when CMS well-intentioned goes in under Medicare and says, thou shalt do this, thou shalt not do that, uh, not only is a lot of that poorly sourced and thought out because one size does not fit all, but there's a certain cultural tension that you create. No one likes to be told, this is how you should change your practice. If I said, you know, you've got this podcast all wrong, I and mean, you should do this instead of that, 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 that's not a great way to start a conversation with someone. So our approach is, is collegial, collaborative, evidence-based. Secondly, uh, over time, the economics have to support that. I believe the reason that care pathways are not adhered to at a very high level uh, is very often they're not really tied to the economic incentive of the provider. So it's lovely that um, you should be encouraged to counsel your patients at their annual physical about nutrition and exercise because you, you're fearful they are in that 30% pre-diabetic category. But if, if the insurance company wants you to see eight patients in an hour and you only see four, you are punished for taking that extra time to do that counseling. You're punished, not just rewarded. You're affirmatively punished. That's not the fault of the provider. It's not really the fault of the insurance company either, frankly, that their business model, uh, if, if they're in the fully insured market, is to – they only have that life for a year at a time – is to make a profit off that life each year. And you, we can quarrel whether that's a good system or not, but that's the system they live under. So I think the key to increasing adherence to care pathways is, in addition to the collaborative approach, an economic approach, which has the provider share in the benefits of following that care pathway. Every time a type 2 diabetic listens and is counseled about nutrition and exercise and improves their A1C level and is healthier and is less likely to have a catastrophe and more likely to be healthy, the provider system, the physicians, the nurses who participated in that should be rewarded for that, not penalized. That's great. So, so your, your your driver, your engine is an economic one, and what you're what you're um, paying for, what you're incenting, is actual health outcomes. Yeah, it's not the sole provider either. Um, I don't want to minimize the degree of commitment and mission that care providers have. I think a lot of them enter it for all the right reasons. But if if you have a sense of mission and can't pay your bills, you fail. Oh, I agree. And, yeah, yeah, that's all there is to it. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I yeah. think economics are an important foundation, but they are by no means the only uh, the only appeal to the providers. But but I think your point is spot on. You're disincenting, if not punishing, providers for wanting to spend more time mm -hmm. and doing the preventive, proactive care. It's not. It's just not the way the system works, and least in primary care. And so you're you're essentially creating a uh, a different sort of system. Yes. Um, I love that. Now, and you're you're going in pretty 
uh, I don't want to use the word aggressively, but you're, you're going into Chicago, uh, and working with Advocate. Uh, you're going into Dallas, you're working with Baylor, I understand, and you go into Phoenix and creating a narrow network there. Uh, so a network by narrow network of providers that, um, are achieving the kinds of, um, yep. health outcomes and the kinds of, uh, appropriate utilization that you're looking for. So you're, you're being very, very strategic about this. Do you want, do you want to, could you say a few words about that that could provide me and the listeners a sense of what you're doing and, and how you want to expand that? They're, they're the first examples of the collaborative approach that I talked about a few minutes ago. Uh, we're certainly not going in telling the physicians and healers in those cities, stop what you're doing now, listen to us. That would be foolish. Right. We're saying is let's, let's learn from the successes you've had. Let's try to supplement those successes with the evidence that we've seen. And let's evolve the way we pay you from fee-for-service to fee-for-value. And I would emphasize the verb evolve. Um, you can't walk in the first day and say, well, you know, we're going to stop paying you X dollars per procedure and instead pay you on the value delta that I talked about, the difference between what happened and what would have happened. It takes time, it takes data, it takes an agreed-upon baseline, and it takes a relationship where there's mutual trust between the parties. So we are working in those three markets to develop those relationships and then extrapolate from them, not just to other regions. Uh, Our objective is to be everywhere in the country in two or three years, Um, but also to broaden the care areas that we, we are emphasizing diabetes and the orthopedic uh, and back situations that we talked about earlier, but we certainly want to expand into interventional cardiology, into OB, Um, certainly eventually oncology has to come online, and we're interested in broadening the uh, situations we're looking at. And how, I'm curious about this, how, because so many of the listeners uh, are are physicians and and, uh, physician leaders. Uh, to this podcast, I, 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 w- I have an answer to this question, but I'm curious as to the reality that you're experiencing, which when you go into these environments and you outline your plan to physicians, what what is their response? We've been very heartened by the fact that um, physicians want to be part of this mission. Now, they are mature in that desire. It's not, oh, this must be great. I mean, you know, these are men and women who have been around the block. Mm-hmm. But they are responsive to the fact that we're not marching in and telling them that everything they've done up to this point is wrong. And, you know, again, that's just counterproductive. Mm-hmm. So I think there's been a great degree of, of responsiveness if, in fact, we hold up our end of the bargain. Mm-hmm. We understand that our end of the bargain is threefold. One, we have to mean it when we say there's going to be collaboration. It can't be, yep, Come to a meeting, we're going to treat you nicely, but then we're going to do whatever we feel like. I mean, it's got to be true collaboration. Second end of the bargain we've got to hold up, uh, I believe, is that we have to uh, evolve toward the, the fee-for-value model in a measured and fair way. Um, we're, we're quite aggressive about wanting to get there, but we understand we're more likely to get there sooner and better if we're collaborative. What does that mean? We understand you can't just walk in and tell someone we're going to upset your whole business model tomorrow morning and expect them to react well to that. Instead, we're looking for a pacing and, you know, a degree of benchmarks that are fair to everybody and and predictable. 
And then third is we have to deliver patients. We understand that, that you can't really say uh, all the patients who are in your hospital right now are going to switch over your system, going to switch over to a different way of being uh, treated and paid for. Um, but you're not going to get anything beyond that. I mean, you know, we have we understand that there is a, a commercial aspect to this that the provider systems have to uh, live under. So we've been heartened by the fact that there has been uh, interest and, and real willingness to participate. Look, in any f- field of human endeavor, if you start from the proposition of divisiveness, there's us and there's you. There's the red team and the blue team. You're probably not going to make it. If you walk in and you look instead for the commonalities that exist among the players involved uh, and go first to those commonalities and then try to get people accustomed to trusting each other, accustomed to working together, that's when I think you can achieve a better result. You know, our, our, look, the impatient side of us says that we we want to achieve all the improvements and all the savings first thing tomorrow morning. Mm-hmm. But the prudent side of us says that's going to be counterproductive. Uh, it's going to be much more effective if you make this a collaborative exercise. Now, and I think that that makes so much sense. And at the same time, you're you're predicting pretty significant savings, even the short run, meaning in the next three years. Yeah. What are those yeah. savings? Uh, in the Chicago market, um, compared to a PPO plan, compared to a sort of standard PPO plan. Our members will experience a save in their claim spend uh, in the neighborhood of 15%. So that uh, per person. So that that means that if you have a per person spend of $3,000 a year, you can expect uh, maybe a $450 reduction in that in your claim spend in the aggregate uh, in the first year. It's pretty significant, and and the numbers I've seen. Uh, again, from some of the literature I've read, is you're talking about from at least this is this is what I've read that from savings in in, in pharmacy savings, you're talking about six hundred million dollars over the next three years, and overall yeah. something like one billion dollars, one billion dollars in savings over the next three years. So is that yeah. again largely coming from pharmacy? But uh, that's I mean those are pretty significant, even even with the yeah. pace. Uh, you know, we, we phased in the pharmacy first because it's a national program. It's something that is more commoditized, frankly. Um, but I want to emphasize that we're not a quantitative organization when it comes to goals. Um, yet we, we could probably save a billion dollars by reducing the care that people get. Mm-hmm. Well, that would be counterproductive because mm-hmm. it would also be immoral. <laughs> the, the, the people who are, are we are responsible for are we are responsible for as long as they work for our member employers uh, or in the family of somebody who does mm-hmm. until they're 26 at least. And so that's kind of short-sighted to say we can save a whole lot of money but not do as good a job on care. We are interested, and we this is our DNA. <clears throat> we believe, and I think the evidence clearly supports this. If you do a better job taking care of people, it will cost a lot less in the long run. Mm -hmm. It just will. So the smoking cessation program in which you invest in year one uh, benefits you for many, many years to come because of the absence of respiratory disease or cancer or, or, frankly, just general lack of good health for someone who smokes. 
Um, I keep going back to chronic disease, but obviously that's where the problem is right. usually. <clears throat> that, you know, a, a diabetic, a type 2 diabetic who is vigilant about her blood sugar or his A1C uh, at diet and exercise is going to be healthier. And you used exactly the right numbers. Our data show that you know, the, the all-in cost for a person who's not a diabetic and doesn't have another serious uh, medical problem is about $4,000 a year. The all-in cost for a type 2 diabetic is $18,000 a year on the average. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, this is where we measure ourselves by health outcomes, and we expect to measure those with whom we do business by health outcomes. This is a noble goal, but it's also an economically shrewd goal. Um, if you want to look at someone's earnings per share, which our members have to do every day in the marketplace, those earnings per share are going to escalate if their employees are healthier. And uh, we, we don't think this is a, a choice between um, – we don't think that there is a choice between uh, taking good care of people and saving money, we think they're synonymous if they're done in the right way. Yeah, I, I would, I would wholeheartedly agree with you. I, I think the numbers that I've heard you quote at these, you know, six hundred million over or one billion overall cost. I think they speak to the fact that there's a tremendous amount of opportunity for yeah. improving the effectiveness and efficiency of care, and um, and and in no way do we even have to come close to. Uh, reducing care and, uh, you know, appropriate care whatsoever. I mean, you, uh, you know, again, one of your tactics is in the, in the realm of, of pharmaceuticals. And, and again, there it's about, uh, well, instead of me answering that, well, you know, what is it that you're doing? And I think you're doing some really interesting work on that side to lower the cost of care and uh, we are, actually what we're trying to care. do when, what we're trying to do in the, in the RX space is to, is to make people healthier again. And we think the way to do that is to match the right drug for the right patient at the right time at the right price. And our actions have kind of been taken in the reverse order of that. Price is the first thing we have gone after. And frankly, it's a, it's an interesting target of opportunity because a significant share of the cost of a drug that someone buys, maybe 30% in some cases, is is people who get the drug somehow from the manufacturer to the patient who play some role in that in that uh, effort that is a vastly inflated cost compared to just about the way everything else gets to consumers whether it's the phone that I'm on or the food that you're going to eat for lunch or the you know the car that you drive it just doesn't cost 30% to get it from the manufacturer to the user so we have gone after that target in the first instance with a competitive process among pharmacy benefit managers. In fact, our members are experiencing a median save of about 15% on their drug spend starting January 1st of 18, a couple of weeks from now. They're experiencing that kind of save, and that's great as far as we're concerned, but it's not even half the problem. The problem in pharma is too often there are people receiving prescriptions that are either ineffective, redundant, or even harmful to the patient. Now, why is that? Again, it is not because physicians are, you know, ill-informed or bad people that want to make these mistakes. That's not true at all. That there's insufficient information 
in front of the physician and the patient at the time the script is being written, typically insufficient information. Our next step is try to fix that. And so we're working with people. And then, by the way, when the, when the script is written, very often the patient is unaware of the cost options that he or she may have to, to get the drug. and may wind up choosing the most expensive option. So we're, we're looking at ways to put in the hands of physicians and other script writers relevant information about the efficacy of drugs that are, in, that are the choices. Uh, and we eventually want to get to the point We've got personalized information about those drugs. We see a day coming where when the science matures, and if a person wishes, that a pharmacogenetic test uh, is there for every patient. And the physician can see how that person metabolizes drugs, which may well mean that drug A is ineffective and drug B is terrific and drug C might be harmful. And we want to see the physician have that information in front of her we want to incent both the physician and the patient to use that formula and make it more likely drug B will be prescribed, which has all kinds of benefits down the road. So at the end of the day, just like with units of care that I talked about with, you know, spinal fusions that really aren't indicated, you know, there are antibiotics being written today or MS drugs or steroids or other, uh, that, that aren't, aren't effective. Mm-hmm. And if the information about that patient or the effectiveness of that drug were in front of the physician, we think everybody benefits from that outcome. That's where we're going. That's great. Well, let's turn to the consumer engagement and navigation. And uh, how are you, and I know you're using data as well to enhance that. Could you say, say a word about that? Yeah, our word about this is that, and I say this with respect, but lots of people in the healthcare consumer engagement space haven't had very good track records. Um, you know, drug adherence numbers are dismal. Uh, consumer education and engagement are pretty dismal on chronic disease in particular. Um, so we're, we're actively looking at examples in the U.S. economy of where people have successfully engaged consumers. And these examples are not meant to be whimsical. They're meant to be provocative. Um, you know, I guess three summers ago, uh, hundreds of thousands of people, maybe millions of people, poured ice water over their heads to raise money for ALS. Mm-hmm. Now, somebody figured out a way to capture the public imagination mm-hmm. and make that viral in, in a way that radically changed the fundraising posture of that very worthy organization. Um, here's another sort of silly example. A little counterproductive when we talk about type 2 diabetes. But, you know, a couple of decades ago, somebody at McDonald's walked into Ray Kroc and said, I think we should serve breakfast. And I'm sure that there were dozens of of corporate leaders within the company that had lots of reasons why that wouldn't work, but it did. Um, So what, what I'm pointing out here, are examples of how consumer product companies change the behavior and the habits of Americans to meet whatever objectives they had, fundraising in the case of ALS, you know, gross sales in the case of McDonald's. Why can't we apply the same principles to people paying attention to their cholesterol? The Center for Disease Control told us two years ago now that 58% of Americans at risk of high cholesterol are doing nothing about it, nothing. Mm-hmm. No statins, 
no exercise, no diet, nothing. Um, and, and on a risk-adjusted basis, you know, even this is even true of people at, who normally are not so high targets for chronic disease. So our, our objective is to think way outside the box and think about what might change that 58% non-adherence. Imagine it was down at 48. Just a modest gain. What would that do? in terms of avoidance of cardiovascular problems and all the issues that come with that. So we don't know what the answer in consumer engagement is. Far from it. Far from it. But we know what the question is, which is you've got to look for people who've engaged American consumers in an effective way to do something that's kind of counterintuitive. Because let's face it, no one gets up this morning and says, ah, I really would love to go have a physical exam and a blood test today to check my cholesterol out. That's not the way it works. Um, you know, the fact of the matter is that no one's thrilled about getting a statin written for them because it's one more cost out of their pocket, one more drug they've got to take. But, you know, having a massive stroke isn't a day at the beach either. So there's got to be some way that we can connect with non-adherent uh, patients and change the way they look at these things. And I, I'm, I believe that there's probably three grad students in Palo Alto or Chapel Hill or somewhere who can figure this out. <laughs> but they may not be in the medical school, by the way. It's likely that they're in the MBA program or they're in the theater department. Somebody's got a better sense of what it is that motivates people. That's who we're looking for. That's great. Well, we, we should definitely talk about that. I've been spending quite a bit of time uh, studying this area and talking to people all across the country. It's uh, I completely agree with you. Uh, you know, our, our rate of adherence, as you're pointing out, is uh, across the board, it's about 30 percent, 40 percent. It's about. dismal. It's dismal. dismal. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Just, just think about that, that most people, when they think about breakthroughs in healthcare, think about dramatic new medical uh, devices or drugs or, you know, some dramatic breakthrough in, in biosciences. And those are all welcome, and thank God we have mm -hmm. them. Mm -hmm. But we don't need that here. What we need is a way to figure out, you know, for – I don't know, 10 or 15 million people mm -hmm. to care about their cholesterol who don't and do something about it. It's a behavioral problem. And Absolutely. if that happened, the cost, the benefit for everyone here who pays taxes or insurance premiums or prices in hospitals is going to benefit. And the same is true with diabetes, that, that it is, you know, there's so much discussion in Washington about how, how to pay for health care and how to tax boom and how, what to cut. You understand well that if the percentage of Americans who are morbidly obese was what it was 20 years ago as a share of the population, the savings to Medicare and Medicaid alone would probably pay for every other health care initiative that Congress is thinking about. <laughs> All of it. Yeah, yeah I, I think that's true. Do you think, uh, I mean, since you mentioned D.C., a lot of folks now, given some of the legislation and uh, some of the inertia, are saying, well, these changes aren't going to come as fast as we thought they were and things aren't going to change. But what's your take on it? I mean, do you think that uh, that the change is afoot? I mean, you clearly are uh, initiating a lot of change in the market. but uh, we, we, Yeah, we, we believe that the likely um, result out of Washington is the legal status quo. I don't think much will change in the law. And, you know, we're not a political organization. We have no view on whether that's desirable or undesirable. We just think it's, it is. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. So our, our approach is the market is the place where change is most likely to originate from, from which it is likely to originate. Um, I. So what are we doing? You know, if, if let's take our. I keep coming back to diabetes because it's it's so important. Mm-hmm. But if if we make strides on type two, and we are able to um, demonstrate on a large scale the care pathways that we're talking about, and in fact, the health of people who have that affliction improves, and the number of people who develop that affliction drops, um, that's not some trade secret. That's not some thing we're going to hide and charge everyone else to use. It becomes the standard of care. And when it becomes the standard of care, you benefit from it, whether you're on Medicaid or Medicare or in the fully insured market or whatever, wherever your health care is, is being funded through. So we believe that an example I very often use from the field of telecommunications, you know, I'm talking to you on a phone that can do everything. It, it can take video of my dinner, which for some strange reason people seem to do on Snapchat all the time, mm-hmm. uh, or or it can tell me, it can act as my alarm clock, it's my map when I'm driving. You you understand the incredible advances in technology. How did that happen? <clears throat> well, government did not create a department of smartphones. Um, it, government did pass some laws in the telecom space that made it more viable for communications companies to get into more space and like break up oligopolies and monopolies, which helped. But, um, you know, government kind of got out of the way and, and lots of really brilliant people invented lots of really cool products. But everyone's benefited from this. You know, there are people who work for NASA and who work for uh, the Department of Defense and who work for McDonald's and who work for Marriott Motels who use smartphones. And they are more productive and effective in their business and more communicative in their personal lives. This is what will happen with healthcare uh, practices as well. If, if uh, there are a set of care pathways <clears throat> that dramatically improve healthcare for diabetics, well, that's going to become what everybody does. And the, the benefit of this will spread to all kind of other institutions and employers and users. And that's how the market can improve lifestyle and improve outcomes, we think the same thing can happen in healthcare, and we intend to be a significant contributor to that improvement. So that's a, that's a great setup to this next question, which is you, you mentioned early on, in fact, in your opening uh, sentence or two, mm-hmm. that you have some pretty ambitious large goals, and I was wondering if you could share what the what your vision is, what that picture of the future is for, uh, for HTA and for, for healthcare. The HCA has 7 million people uh, who can benefit from our work today. We believe that we can get to 20 million people. And that's not just an arbitrary number. We believe it also magnifies the quality of what we can do. Um, at its root, our strategy is to amass sufficient um, leverage, amass sufficient opportunities in marketplaces where we're an important customer. We want to be an important customer, not a monopolistic customer, not a a dictating customer. We want to be an important customer. You know, one way to think about this is that we want to pile up enough uh, miles that we can board in zone one instead of zone nine. We're going to get on the plane earlier. 
And when you do that, you get better service. You get upgraded to first class. Well, we want those 7 million people to be upgraded to first class. Mm. And and when that first class is newly defined, everybody's going to benefit from it, and everybody's going to get better service on the airplane. And frankly, um, if you pile up, you know, 7 million bonus miles instead of 20 million bonus miles, you get less service. That, so our vision is to grow large enough, not that we can begin to dictate terms, but that we can begin to be a better customer, elevate the game of providers around the country, improve the quality of care, and and benefit our members, obviously, but we believe benefit everybody from that. Our, our, in simply put, and we don't think we could ever do this by ourselves, but we want to mm-hmm. be a contributor to an effort where pick a medical problem in America today, a healthcare problem, whether it's diabetes, which I keep talking about, or you know, cholesterol problems, that they're markedly better 5, 10, 15 years from now, markedly better. There are fewer people suffering strokes and heart attacks because of uncontrolled diabetes. You know, there are fewer people having cardiovascular problems because of cholesterol issues. There are fewer people smoking. There are more people exercising, more people eating uh, more intelligently. And yes, uh, we want to contribute in, in other ways where by sharpening up the way we spend money, we think we can accelerate the discovery of cures. We think we can accelerate real innovation in healthcare that will, you know, turn the tide on Alzheimer's and, and make some of the other adjustments and changes that I think are necessary. So by no means is the HCA going to do that all by ourselves. Absolutely not. But we believe we can be a catalyzing agent that would help government and and hospitals and insurance companies and others uh, produce better outcomes. We believe we can be a catalyst for all that. Well, that is a uh, that's a, a noble vision. Uh, sounds like you're you definitely have a phenomenal start in and a, and a really rapid start uh, in a relatively short period of time. You uh, you and your colleagues have accomplished quite a bit. Uh, what what would you you know? I'm just wondering what what kind of message would you want to leave uh, our listeners? I mean, these are healthcare leaders and uh, yeah. uh, physicians and what are some key takeaways? What, uh, you know, are you looking for collaborators? Are you looking for colleagues? What what kind of message do you have for, for our listeners? My message would be that improvement in healthcare in this country is not a zero-sum game. Now, it doesn't mean everybody keeps what they have uh, in terms of economic value. And, you know, there's not some readjustment of where money is spent and who who uh, gains and who doesn't gain. Anyone who says that everybody gains is, I think, misleading. But it's not a zero-sum game. And I do believe that there are ways that those who presently, uh, you know, live off the healthcare economy, about a fifth of the economy, that, that can benefit from this by working together. I, I'm not saying everybody benefits. I frankly think that's misleading. But I do think that you don't have to throw everything out and say start all over again and cause massive, massive unemployment and disruption and all the troubles that come with that. I think that if we can get on a different course, if we can collaborate, if we can use evidence to determine what works and what doesn't, 
that there is a bright future, whether you work in a hospital or a drug company or a physical therapy practice or, or a third-party administrator insurance company, that there's a role for everyone. But the role has to be for a different purpose. It can't be to participate in a system where the more of the more units of what you do, the more money you make. It's got to be a system where the better you do, the healthier you make people, the more successful you are economically. And I, that that would be my appeal here. That I think that that's something that lots of people can join in. And the HTA is the place that we believe we can convene like-minded people to achieve that success. Listen, I, I thank you for the opportunity to speak to you today. Yeah, well, it's been my great pleasure, and I know you're, uh, you've got a busy schedule, and thanks for taking some time to speak with us and, and speak with our listeners today. Thanks, Rob. Let's do it again sometime. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So, folks, that was the phone interview that uh, I conducted a few days ago with Rob Andrews. I think you'll agree that, uh, again, this is such a critically important issue, the rising costs of health care, the impact it has on both employers and employees. And it's clear that uh, Rob and his colleagues at the Health Transformation Alliance uh, have some really profound, lofty goals in terms of improving the experience of care, improving the outcomes of care, supporting physicians and other providers in delivering optimal care. And of course, uh, clearly important is stemming the uh, tremendous cost of care and the uh, rising cost of care. As always, I want to thank you most of all uh, for being a listener on this podcast. Uh, you are the, uh, you're the folks who are doing the hard work each and every day of uh, taking care of our patients or directly supporting those that take care of patients. So thank you. This is Ev Newworth. Uh, you've been listening to Creating a New Health Care and wishing you all good health and good living. Until next time, thank you.